Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Heading into its seventh decade of existence, the cricketer had plenty of meaty fare to get its inky fingers into. Botham's antics, on the field more than off it, the emergence of other fine players like David Gower and Graham Gooch, the phenomenal power and exuberance of the West Indies under Clive Lloyd, a first World Cup triumph for India, rebel tours to South Africa and one-day cricket bankrolling the domestic game in England. Christopher Martin Jenkins was at the helm and recruited various current county players to write columns that hopefully would entice and entertain the readers. I was one. Vic Marks, the Somerset and England all-rounder and familiar voice on Test Match Special, was another. I got paid for the very first time in my life for writing something by the cricketer. I'd just probably been selected to go on my first England tour. And CMJ got in touch to ask me whether I would like to be their sort of man in the dressing room. Um, I gather I wasn't the first choice. Because <laughs> um, I think he asked Tav, <laughs> who was also on his first tour. And Tav wasn't that interested. I'm sure you'd send a monthly piece, which you'd have to give to the manager, obviously, to read, to check it out. That means, you know, there's nothing untoward in there. Uh, and I ended up doing that for three tours, the three tours I went on. And then uh, somewhere around then, CMJ then asked me if I'd like to join the board, which sounded a very grand thing. Um, and it was quite a grand thing. And I, I've written about it in the magazine that you suddenly realise you turned up for these board meetings once a year. Uh, possibly in a London club, possibly down in Kent somewhere, I don't know. And um, you'd look around and there was Swanton and there was, there could be Cowdery, Colin Cowdery, Brian Johnson might be there, John Woodcock. 
they weren't very interested in the nuts and bolts of the magazine, but they they loved to come and chat about cricket. And of course, they were talking about pre-war cricket. And then you realise that half of them had watched quite a lot of pre-war cricket and they'd seen all these great players that we've only read about. So that was, a, you know, an early association with the cricketer for me. Uh, and CMJ by then was was the editor, although Swanton still probably felt he had a significant hand on the tiller as well. I mean, your diaries from the tours, how revealing could you be? It's a balancing act, isn't it? Sometimes when you're in that role, you're still playing, you're still part of the team, um, but you don't want to be deadly boring and you want to have something, if not spicy, certainly quirky, something that only you would know. Um, so I guess it was a balancing act and perhaps unlike you, I would, I would go on the safer side. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it, it was good enough to, uh, it was good enough to keep going. And actually the, the couple things I did that I really enjoyed doing, and I also enjoyed, um, reading other people's stuff is that in those days, the cricketer had a diary of the season. And I remember I did a couple seasons of that. And I think Pete Roebuck did one. I remember Alan Gibson, he gave, he, there was a book about it actually. And Alan Gibson did it several years. Brilliant guy. I used to think Alan Gibson was the most phenomenal writer. Um, and that was an interesting little writing project. Whilst you're still playing, you did a, a weekly diary throughout the season for the cricketer. But it was it was quite a chunk of work by the end of the season. Uh, and to have the opportunity to do that after the likes of, as I say, Alan Gibson had done it, I think Pete Roebuck had done it, I'm, I'm sure Tony Lewis or that type of person had done it, was an interesting sort of project for someone who was, you know, mildly interested in doing some writing, but I was still obviously, a, you know, a professional. Boycott, 96 not out. He bowls to him. It's a half volley, drives it down the ground, and there it is. He's done it. He lifts both hands in the air. Jeff Boycott has got his 100th hundred, and the crowd cannot resist coming on to the pitch. CMJ, you know, what sort of character was he? Um, what, what was he like? Well, he was wonderful. I mean, it's amazing, as I was saying in the piece I've written, we still talk about him because you couldn't forget him. You couldn't ignore it. I mean, I loved Mike Selvey's remark that he, when he died of the fact that cricket had lost his greatest friend. Uh, he loved the game with a passion. But he was, you know, he was obviously, we all know that he was hilarious in many ways, uh, manic in many ways. I always used to feel that Christopher was in control of his life far better in front of a microphone than at any other point during the day. Because he was the most consummate, brilliant broadcaster, wonderful voice, beautiful descriptions of what was going on. And, and he seemed to be in control at the microphone. But it's quite hard to establish that he was in control at any other place <laughs> during the day. He'd be turning up about 20 seconds before he was supposed to start. And we all know the various, you know, CMJ stories. I mean, I'm, you know, walking to Cardiff, first day, first ever test match at Cardiff. And we were staying within walking distance so we could walk down that sort of high street down towards the ground uh, and coming up on our left is Marks and Spencer's and CMJ's going to be on time too we're you know we leave in good time and he's with us and he's 
I just got to pop it in Marks and Spencer. I said, oh, right. what for? I'm going to buy a laptop. <laughs> my laptop in Marks and Spencer. And sure enough, he turned up quite a long time afterwards with a laptop. He always used to have arguments with laptops, as you know. Um, I mean, he, he could not waste a moment and he, he was thoroughly unpredictable, but he loved the game. He was great fun to be alongside, whether it's in a country box or on a golf course. I played a lot of golf with him. He was a hilarious golfer without meaning to be. Early on in his time, and Swanton was still floating around, and we just, people had just started playing cluttered clothing, and he had a he had a, a front page or you know a cover, which had someone uh, in coloured clothing sweeping. Now Swanton hated the sweep shot, so this combination of someone in bright pajamas <laughs> sweeping, probably a ball that was on the stumps, <laughs> had Swanton in some sort of this is appalling, <laughs> but but CMJ stuck with it. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think he, he the, I mean, what I always used to think about CMJ, the writer, and this is a virtue, is that because we knew his voice, you read him and you felt you were listening to CMJ. So, and that gave him more sort of authority. You could hear his voice in his writing. Uh, and then a lot of writers haven't got that. A benefit because they're not so their voice isn't so well known but you could you know you could read a piece of cmj whether it was in the cricketer or subsequently when he was writing in the papers and you needn't see the byline you would recognize it as cmj just the, you know because it was faithful to how he was he wrote like he sounded in australia only two years ago australia are all out for 348 on a golden evening at the oval The 1980s were, in many ways, cricket's second golden age. There were so many wonderful matches to appreciate and brilliant players to applaud, and the cricketer enjoyed a golden decade too, with subscriptions topping 40,000 and the various competitions thriving. The Brocklehurst's drive and bonhomie added spirit and fun to the whole enterprise, encapsulated by the occasional get-togethers of the cricketer board, of which the former Hampshire captain, now writer and broadcaster Mark Nicholas, was an enthusiastic member. The meetings were very funny, actually. I joined the board at the invitation of Ben Brocklehurst, who was a huge man, as um, were his family. All the family were big human beings, or are, the sons stood around. But, uh, and enormous fun and very generous. And they were as their parties, board meetings, lunches, Christmas presents were every bit as big as the family. I mean, they were amazing people. And Ben really believed in the magazine. He, he, he people, you know, well, yes, it was a business venture for him, but he adored the magazine. He played cricket for Somerset himself. He, he loved the Cricketer Cup, a, a competition started by the magazine for um, private school old boys. And he he, he set up a magazine driven, yes, certainly by, you know, good features and photographs and good records of matches. He gave space to club cricket and schools cricket. But, but he did it really wanting to entertain the people who read it. He definitely saw the magazine as entertainment and Jim saw it more as record. But I was very excited to join the board of, you know, the Cricketer magazine, having read it so much as a boy. And 
you'd have your, you know, you'd meet at nine o'clock for the board meeting and it finished. It was a long board meeting. You break for coffee and biscuits. And, but it, at 12 o'clock, you were served cold champagne <laughs> um, and smoked salmon nibbles on brown bread. And then at one o'clock, you finished the board meeting, come what may. I mean, you might have been on, you know, a serious issue like hiking the price or something. <laughs> but it didn't matter. You broke for lunch and you had a proper lunch. And I mean, you know, proper lunch, a lot of good wine, ate a lot of food, pretty good food. It was a trencherman's lunch, but it was good food. And then you went on to port. You carried on the conversation and then you reconvened if there were further things to discuss. But of course, after a lunch like that at three o'clock, you, all you want to do is nod off. Um, so they were great days. The, the cricket at board meeting day was a great one. I, I think there were two a year. Then your Christmas present always arrived. He, he sent every board member a side of smoked salmon and half a case of champagne, decent champagne. And, and that was a great treat. Um, but he never stinted on his magazine. You know, if it meant spending money, his own money, to make it a, a more fabulous experience for, his, for the members of his board, who he asked personally to come along and join in the fun, he, he would do so. At the time, the magazine's editorials were filed under the pseudonym Felix, the job of writing it shared by CMJ and Jim Swanton. Both men had a deep knowledge and appreciation of the game, and Swanton's 80-plus years and rich life experience gave his opinions huge gravitas. As a board member of the cricketer and Daily Telegraph colleague, Mark Nicholas knew him well. Jim was extraordinary. People forget how he, probably people don't know, but he... When he was a prisoner of war, of war in, in, he was captured in Singapore and was a prisoner of war in Burma and, and he got polio and he got quite disfigured and, and very thin. His father didn't recognise him at the station when he picked him up, literally walked straight past him. Jim didn't talk about it much, but that's a true story. I think he, um, you know, the, the, the great story about the thumbnailed copy of the 1939 almanac was an almanac that he took with him and, and smuggled it in into the camp somehow and, and therefore knew every word of it by the end. Again, that's true. Um, and, you know, he carried on in life. Never He never once in any facet of his life did he ever mention the inconvenience or the discomfort of that polio and of that suffering in that war camp. He, he lived in pain. Um, he'd never, ever mentioned it. He could come up with some classic stuff. The, the, the um, I was I had played a morning four ball with Downton Cowdery and Nick Kemp, and the four of us were having lunch at Royal St George's, and it came up about um, you know who is the next best batsman after Bradman, and we were just knocking it around as a bit of a laugh. And I said I should think a combination of Barry and Viv Richards, the best of each, would do that easily. And Nick Kemp, being mischievous, had walked over to Jim, who was sitting at another table with his wife, Anne, and a couple of other friends who played a full foursome in the morning, and told him that I'd said that Bradman would be matched by the best of the two Richards. <laughs> so, 
we were eating a you know whatever we were eating treacle tart or something for pudding and and um i got this firm sort of wrap on my shoulder and i looked up and jim was a very big man jim, huge man, tall man and I, ah jim i said hi jim he said i hear you think that the two richards would make the best after bradman I saw Hammond, dear boy, and I can assure you, he knocks the two Richards into a cocked hat. <laughs> Brilliant. So the cricketer was dominated by these two considerable cricketing figures, CMJ and EWS, neither of whom, incidentally, had ever played county cricket, although Swanton did play three matches for Middlesex against the universities before the war. But both men were so busy and in demand that the magazine was actually run for more than 20 years by Mandy Ripley, whose previous jobs had included referee's assistant at the All England Tennis Championships and nanny to Jimmy Connor's children. She had only a sketchy understanding of cricket, so under CMJ's editorship, she had to learn fast. My first ever letter that I wrote, he was dashing off somewhere, as he always did, and he'd scrawled this letter to Don Bradman and signed a piece of headed paper and said, just type that around that signature, would you, and get it off. And he had mentioned the name Clary Grimmett. Well, I didn't know anything about the history of the game, so I read the word as Charlie and wrote this letter with his signature on the end, Charlie Grimmett, and like as quick as the post office would carry it, the reply came back from Bradman saying, I would have thought you'd have known better. And uh, he was... Terribly embarrassed, terribly embarrassed. I've got this new secretary, I've got this new secretary. Um, and uh, back went the reply to Don Bradman, cap in hand almost, you know. And um, so things like that, he was funny. Um, but he once that happened, he said to me, you need to learn your cricket. Here's a book. And he gave me a book, um, which I read from cover to cover and fell in love with the history of the game. And, and so I, I've got a lot to thank him for, really. He would breeze into the office um, uh, with his laptop and about a dozen different newspapers um, under his arm and put them down on the desk and, and almost immediately open the old-fashioned type, typewriter with a lid, as it was in those days, and just begin typing. He, he Morning, morning, um, and just begin, just start work straight away. He just had that knack of walking in and just being able to begin. And... Um, he, he he actually came in one day and said, hmm, I made a bit of a mistake the other morning. Uh, oh, what's that, Christopher? Well, I got dressed in the dark and uh, I'm afraid. And he stuck he stuck his feet out and he got one black and one brown shoe on. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to wake his wife, you know. So. T- tell us about um, the, the location of the magazine at the time and sort of what the daily routine was like. Uh, well, when I first started, we were in uh, Red Hill in uh, an office loaned to us by a company called Surrey Fine Art Press, who were the printers at the end of the road. And um, they used to um, bring daily galleys from, from from the printers over in Reading. And down came our galleys uh, for us to proofread and, and correct and then send back on the truck the next day. And it was a tiny room. I mean, literally... Uh, the size of a bedroom, really, in which there were four desks, I think, four desks, a big layout table, because it was all paper and scissors then. Um, and we only had a fax machine, no modern communication. So when the galleys eventually started to come by fax, 
they weren't really good for proofreading. You'd miss an awful lot. But it was all we had to get the thing done at the time. Jim Swanton, who was still involved then, uh, yes. did you have much contact with him and how? what was he like? Yes, I did. I did. Eventually, he, he ended up doing the book review column and he would ring me and say, Amanda, could you meet me at Canterbury on such and such a day and bring your latest books? So I would trawl over to um, the county ground, wherever he happened to be, um, with a pile of books in the boot of my car, um, hand them to him one by one, and the first thing he did was look in the index, and if his name wasn't in there, he'd say, you could do that one. <laughs> at the beginning of the 1990s, there were some team changes at the Cricketer. CMJ stood down as editor, and Jim Swanton, who was in his mid-80s, also finally relinquished his role. The Brocklehursts were keen on a famous name as the new figurehead and piloted in the Yorkshire and England all-rounder Richard Hutton, son of Selene, as editorial director. He was certainly enthusiastic about the job, but the fortunes of the England cricket team declined markedly. And by the close of play, another 34 runs have been added to take the Australian score along to 580 for six, a massive total. And that, and the expansion of newspapers' sports coverage, had a significant effect on the prosperity of the magazine. Well, I think the biggest single factor of my time that affected us, or the success of the publication, was the appalling performance of the England team. And um, during my seven years, I don't think we won a single series, and frequently, England were beaten in 5-0 of a five-match series. And in many instances, they were incapable of extending a five-day match much beyond three days. It, it was really pathetic to um, have to attend. <laughs> but it, it did shorten my weekend quite a lot. Um, <laughs> Because of that, the, the progress was always uphill because of the fact that the England team were doing so badly. The other feature of that time was that um, there was a very big shake-up in the publication world generally following the control of the print unions, which allowed a lot of national newspapers to extend their coverage way beyond just normal news gathering. To some extent, one felt that we, we were losing our specialisation as a cricketing publication because all the newspapers were now running to three or four pages on cricket, not necessarily uh, match reports, mm. but also all sorts of features on all aspects of the game. Peter Pershard was the day-to-day -day editor, a role he had effectively been performing for several years, and putting the magazine to bed was still a torturous process. But he recruited some punchy columnists. It was archaic. You know, we'd take three days to go from getting a piece of copy to getting a galley, and then cutting up galleys on a board, pasting them down, sizing up pictures either on a, um, a light box or 
if it was a tranny uh, with a projector onto the wall and then doing tracings, uh, it was crazy. Anyway, you'd get a galley, you'd send off the thing and you'd get a page proof. So it would take, you know, something like five days or something to get a page from beginning to end. I was doing sheets all down the corridor, sort of laying them out, trying to make everything fit together. And I also just wanted to liven up the inside a little bit. It was great on history. It was great on top writing, which, you know, one never wanted to interfere with and wanted to enhance, if anything. But I, I, it needed a little, a little more colourful writing, perhaps, in parts and a, few, a bit more diversity, perhaps. Mm. So I like to think, you know, introducing things like the Cricketer of the Month as a poster for kids to cut out and put on their wall. We started doing things like the fixtures lift as a big colour-coded thing, which helped. Richard, when he came in, I mean, one of Richard's great ideas was Bouncer, which um, took a, a, a good swipe at the, at the cricket media in a way. Well, not a swipe, but it was a fairly forensic sort of have a go at uh, some of the things that were going on. Who wrote Bouncer? Ah, well, you see, that was the great thing. We kept that a secret, and it's still a secret as far as I know today. I mean, I can share this with you probably now because it doesn't really matter, but it was Jack Bailey. Right, interesting. Who obviously knew the whole business from, from both sides. I mean, obviously, his fallout with the TCCB when he was at MCC. Um, but no, it was, it was a wonderful column, actually. It... it um, obviously uh, stuck the knife in in a few places. And, the, and of course, the, all the cricket writers loved it. Um, and there was a constant guessing game. And I think a lot of people thought it was Richard, but it clearly wasn't. Around this time, the cricketer had a rather nomadic existence, moving from tiny premises in Redhill to a factory in Kent where the Sabutio football game was manufactured and then to a vineyard in Lamberhurst. There was further upheaval when the magazine converted from the old system of cut and paste to desktop publishing. It was a long overdue transformation, but various factors conspired against the magazine that was now run by the Brocklehurst son, Tim. When I joined in 92, um, we began, it, it was at the time uh, when the circulation began to, to fall. The bookstall circulation in particular began to fall. It wasn't long after that that the lottery was started. And I remember our distribution manager, Harry Constantine, at our regular meetings that we'd have about uh, distribution and circulation. And endlessly, the excuse for a reduced circulation month on month was because people were buying lottery tickets instead. Uh, and this had never been a phenomenon before. Um, and But he, you know, it, it provided some reason as to why it was difficult to justify selling so many uh, magazines on the bookstores. But aside from that, there was more competition, I suppose, on the bookstores. The internet was still very young, so that wasn't to blame necessarily. But um, it, I remember it, it, it focused my mind on wanting to increase subscriptions uh, and that I thought there was an opportunity to shore up a, a more future-proofed magazine if we had a strong subscription base. I remember too in that period that, you know, the internet, young though it was, by 1997, that we actually launched a, a um, quick shop, which was an online e-commerce shop selling our cricket merchandise. 
and it went well. It was uh, it provided a further stream of of custom, if you like, um, beyond the pages of the magazine, you know, to this cricket audience um, that Crick Info had, uh, and that was a fascinating time. While we were watching the circulation of the magazine fall on the bookstores, uh, I was watching internet use grow and grow, and um, you know, I, it, the writing was on the wall as far as I was concerned that that we were all going to go digital. Um, but of course, there was that always that argument about how valuable it was to hold a piece of paper and to hold the magazine in your hands. And we still haven't solved that entirely yet. There she goes. And he's going to go. He's gone. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? They could not have painted the picture clearer for the England captain, and he's fallen for it. So the cricketer emerged into the new millennium, battling for its future, rather like the England cricket team under Nasser Hussain. The Brocklehursts, after three decades of ownership, finally sold out to Wisden Cricket Monthly, owned by the Getty family, and two magazines briefly became one, under a new editor, John Stern, just as a new format of the game, T20, was introduced. Hugh Turberville remembers the merger well, for very personal reasons. The cricketer was bought by Wisden, owned by Sir Paul Getty, John Paul Getty, and uh, the Brocklehurst family made way, although they were part of the selection panel interviewing the new editor, because I went for that job, um, and John Stern got it, and he was in charge of what was called the Wisden Cricketer, merging with Wisden Cricket Monthly, and he was there from 2003 to 2011. And it was a very good magazine, I thought. I, I read it in earnest in that period. He was a very good editor, I thought. Uh, and his challenge was to sort of take the best bits from the cricketer and the best bits from the other magazine and fuse them together, and I thought he did pretty well. 99 for Vaughan. He's got it away. That's well played. Listen to the roar goes up. That's Michael Vaughan's 15th century, and he's fourth against Australia. By 2004, England had rebuilt under Michael Vaughan, and with Channel 4 injecting imagination and marketing spend into their cricket coverage, magazine sales were rejuvenated. They peaked again at 40,000, around the climax of the epic 2005 Ashes, which had the nation enthralled and sparked a new wave of wannabe Flintoffs playing cricket in parks and on commons. Flintoff has changed the whole feeling of the occasion. Beauty! Yes! Magnificent cricket from this man. He set the place alight. the band to go and Harmison has done a despair on the faces of the batsmen and joy for every England player on the field. But the spectacular launch of the Indian Premier League in 2008 with its Yes Bank maximums and SEAT strategic timeouts left English cricket playing catch-up, especially as it could now only be found behind a Sky Sports paywall. Sky also purchased the magazine, still called the Wisden Cricketer, but sales stalled. 
The pick-me-up was the intervention of the former Leicestershire chairman Neil Davidson and Lord Marland of Oddstock, who bought the magazine in 2010 and returned it to its original title. Davison explains their rationale. About 18 months before we acquired the cricketer, we'd started a website, testmatchextra.com, which was really the brainchild of Lord Jonathan Mar Marland and Jonathan Agnew, and I got involved, and a number of the journalists involved got involved, including yourself, Christopher Mark and Jenkins, Vic Marks and others. And that was, that was doing okay. Then we had the opportunity to buy the cricketer magazine, what was the Wisdom Cricketer at that stage, from Sky. We didn't even know they, they owned it. Uh, we, as a bunch of cricket lovers, thought this was a wonderful idea to acquire the magazine alongside our website. It gave us the opportunity to rebrand the website itself, thecricketer.com, and to acquire a an iconic brand which we all loved and read since childhood. We thought there was a commercial opportunity when we formed the, the website um, and this built on on that, uh, that acquiring the magazine and the, particularly the cricket brand we saw as a way of actually accelerating the uh, the progress of, uh, of the newly formed organisation. I mean it's had its ups and downs in the meantime but the magazine has been a constant factor and, and actually is doing doing very well now. We're very privileged, we feel, to be the owners of it and have been for the last 10 years. So we've 10% of its existence has been in our hands and I think uh, we've tried different things at different times, but I think we've settled on a formula which serves the game very well indeed. The old title has taken time to find its new feet, but the revamping of the Cricketer website has given the business a new lease of life, with online editor Sam Morshead spearheading a new and award-winning digital presence. Cricket Info and Cricket Buzz are such major players in the industry, and, and they dominate the landscape completely. Um, and quite rightly so, they've been around for a long time, they're well established um, on the subcontinent. Uh, and over here, I think we've We've kind of relied on the on newspapers um, for day-to-day -day, uh, reporting of the game. Um, and that hasn't really spread out as much as you've seen in other sports. Uh, so obviously with, with some other sports, there's a, a lot of websites around. Obviously football is the, is the main example of this. But cricket has, it has some and it has a limited number. But I think that certainly from a, from a UK perspective, it's, it's always been scoped to go deep, to sort of do the job that wisdom do um, on, a, on an annual basis in the Almanac. Um, and do it on a more regular basis, particularly with the weight of um, of identity and and the and the prestige and heritage brand that the cricketer is. That you know that 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 brought into the twenty first century with a with a prize digital offering that that gives our readers um, opportunities to go in all different directions, and of course uses itself as a marketing arm for the for the cricketer magazine as well. I think that definitely. Definitely was an opportunity there, and that opportunity is still there. We're nowhere near getting to where we, where I think we can get with the uh, with the digital side of the business. Um, you know, we have over a, a million uniques from the from the UK that come to our site in the last twelve months, and, and we're still relatively small. So, I think that, that there's still plenty of potential to to go and spread the word and um, and hopefully compete with with those big national newspapers and BBC and, and places like that to to be the first port of call for. The county fans and fans of the recreational game or the players of the recreational game and there's a big appetite for our domestic cricket journalism coverage and we've won the 
ECB's award for the outstanding online place for coverage of the domestic game for the last two years. Um, and, and that's a great starting point. But, you know, we've also uh, ventured out into the world of franchise cricket and, um, and that's a, a big part of, of what we do, the, the, the IPL, the PSL, the CPL, Big Bash and, and 100 will, will obviously go in line with this as well and, and just trying to provide a service of information along these tournament lines that people want to go to for quick and quick and easy info and that's then topped up and complemented by an excellent feature writing team and um, producing regular quality deep reads into, into the game that we all love. The print magazine is still the core of the business and through listening to the readership, a recommendation of new managing director Guy Evans-Tipping, our small team has been able to grow its subscriber base, a rare achievement in a world of free online content. Both I and managing editor Hugh Turberville have focused on top-class contributors and comprehensive county coverage, filling the vacuum left by national newspapers. We went back to basics, didn't we? Uh, very much giving the readers what they wanted. Guy introduced a survey annually that for the readers to fill in and we we wanted to go back to give the readers what they craved really which was a lot of a lot of county cricket if I'm honest I mean John Stern found that early on that you know you couldn't give the readers enough county cricket but we certainly wanted to give them more of that that came through in the surveys they wanted more county cricket we were still going to cover the game at all levels schools club uh, international. Very much our focus, both you and I, was on um, getting the best writers, Simon, wasn't it? We had, yeah, I mean, you were, we both worked together at the Telegraph and you'd been at the Times and I'd been at the Express as well. So we knew who who did what in Fleet Street, didn't we? And we got some good writers like uh, Simon Barnes and Shield Berry and Paul Gideon, Hayward's done, done some Hay bits. Well. Yeah, Gideon Hay, we got him to do a regular thing. He didn't want to do a sort of a column uh, every month where he sort of um, sounded off about things, but he's, he's done a fantastic thing called The Window where he looks at old photos. So that's lovely, isn't it? I mean, another thing that we, we in, in many ways, it's in this sort of digital age, you'd think is a slight anachronism, is the test match reports, but they remain really popular with our readers. You know, um, two page reports on each test uh, written by various writers. And, and sometimes, you know, people will be reading those a month after the test takes place. And people can sort of sit back and have a glass of wine and, and reflect on a match rather than banging out copy, you know, that night or the next morning. They've probably got a month to sort of let it just simmer and and and, and reflect languidly on, on the match. So I think that they, they're, they're really popular. Gattel's going to push for two. They've got to go. It's got to throw. It's got to go to the keeper's end. He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! By the barest of all margins! Absolute ecstasy for England! Agony! Agony for New Zealand! England's brilliant 2019 World Cup triumph at Lords, on the back of a similar achievement by their female counterparts two years earlier, gave the cricketer a timely boost just as it approached its centenary, and 12 different covers were produced, one featuring each player and one the entire team, to commemorate the World Cup win. And the cricketer staff turned the Covid interruption of the 2020 season to advantage by producing a number of themed issues on great cricket books, beautiful grounds, defining innovations, and a special spread on the Black Lives Matter initiative centred round the thoughts and experiences of the UK's only black cricket correspondent, the Daily Mirror's Dean Wilson. The cricketers sort, sort of grasped the nettle, you know, pretty 
firmly and swiftly. One of the great things as well is is about awareness and education. You know, a lot of people on this issue have referenced back to, you know, Michael Holding and, and Ebony Rainford Brent's, um, you know, kind of um, inspiring segment on on TV. Um, but, you know, let's not forget that the absolute central tenet of what uh, Mikey was saying was about education, about evolving and improving and changing. And you do that through education. You do it through um, opening people's eyes um, and hearts to um, more knowledge and more experience. And and I think through that, um, that, that is how we will... Um, get to a place of greater tolerance and, and greater understanding, which I think is a you know a good thing. Um, and I think that's you know not that that goes for not just for for Black Lives Matter, but that goes for you know gender equality, um, you know diversity across uh, you know a whole range of subjects and and you know issues like disability cricket, women's cricket, um, youth cricket, club cricket, you know all things that the cricketer you know does cover. You know they're all they're all really important. In the first part of the 21st century, the cricketer has evolved and expanded to find its position in the rapidly changing media landscape. And for our loyal columnist and lead Sky commentator Nasser Hussain, the publication is as relevant now as it was when he was just starting out in the game. Growing up, you always wanted to be on the front cover, really. I mean, it's not quite Sports Illustrated, but it's still the Cricketer magazine and you were desperate to be in it, or eventually one day it would be nice to be on the front cover of the Cricketer magazine. Or even in the middle, didn't they used to have like a shot of the month, something. You wanted to feature in a good way uh, in the Cricketer uh, magazine, you know, not in a bad way, five ducks in a row or whatever. So I think my first appearance was, was when I was about 16 or 17 and everyone was heralding me. I had that big bouffonny curly hair. Um, and there was a terrible picture of me in it and uh, everyone was going on about my leg spin and only I knew that at that stage I was getting the yips of my leg spin uh, and was starting to work on my batting. So it was a sort of double-edged sword to, to end up in the cricketer, but um, I took it anyway. It seems that the cricketer have stayed ahead of the curve and stayed up with the modern ways of accessing information. So it's a good sign because if it hasn't done that, there's a lot of good examples of things that have just been left behind because they haven't felt the need to improve. So there are similarities between that and being a cricketer, not necessarily getting a hunt, but constantly throughout your career, you're trying to get better and and improve. So um, for the cricketer to still be around and going well and going strongly after such a long period is is a good sign, but also a sign that it needs to keep looking and keep Keep making sure it, it you know, gets into the challenges that lie ahead. So, thanks to the devotion and imagination of all its owners, editors, staff and contributors, the Cricketer magazine has been able to register its century, perhaps the finest hundred the game has seen, certainly the most demanding. It's a triumph of perseverance and passion and never taking your eye off the ball. But a publication is nothing without its readers, and on behalf of all who've written or worked for The Cricketer, I'd like to thank everyone who's ever picked up and browsed through a copy, and hope you'll join us as we embark ball by ball, keystroke by keystroke, on our next century.
For £19.21, you can get a six-month subscription to the magazine, which includes our commemorative April 2021 issue and summer wall chart. Go to www.thecricketer.com slash centenary to sign up. Thank you also to all the contributors on this special programme, and especially to the composer and ardent cricket fan Andrew Skeet for the music. And thank you to you for listening and hope you're inspired by the cricketer's tale of resilience and reinvention and the constancy it gives you in a rapidly changing world. That's a splendid hundred. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.